in-depth journalism is more important than ever in a complicated, chaotic time. That's why we listen to NPR's Throughline. This is a podcast that appeals to us on so many levels. As history buffs, we love their historical contextualization of important ongoing issues. As storytellers, we love the engaging way they approach and often humanize complicated tales. As news consumers who want to stay informed, we love the way they give the story behind the big stories of the day. We try to take a similar approach on the murder sheet, and we feel confident that our listeners would enjoy giving NPR's Throughline a try. We've been going through their entire backlog recently, listening to them as we drive to source meetings. One favorite of mine was their episode about Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Throughline's coverage didn't disappoint, delving in depth into one of history's worst U.S. presidents. They also did an episode which is rather pertinent to our work, and that was the one they did about the proliferation of conspiracy theories and how they've always been part of America's DNA. That's something I think about quite a lot, given the creep of misinformation and manipulation in online true crime spaces. NPR's Throughline is a source we trust. They're all about nuance and depth and unpacking the messiness behind outwardly simple stories. Go back in time. Learn something new. Emerge more knowledgeable about today's headlines. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder, violence, and addiction. So we recently had on one of our longtime guests, a veteran criminal defense attorney from the western half of the United States, to talk about the then-ongoing Murdoch trial of Richard Alexander or Alec Murdoch, the one-time prominent South Carolina attorney who was accused of murdering his wife Maggie and their son Paul in 2021. This is a trial that the whole country seemed to be following it was basically a very high-profile media event. It It's a tragic case. It sort of sees the fall of a once-prominent family that was very much connected in the low country of South Carolina. Alec Murdoch himself actually was the solicitor in that area for a while. That is essentially their version of the district attorney. So it was a very shocking case, very brutal double homicide, and sort of also seemed to reveal a number of sordid facts about the Murdoch family and and their conduct. Alec Murdoch essentially confessed to being a drug addict, confessed to doing a lot of financial crimes, but maintained his innocence. The prosecution said, no, he, he killed his wife and son. And the jury on Thursday actually came back very quickly. Surprisingly quickly. It caught a lot of people by surprise. 
how quickly they returned a verdict. And of course, that verdict was guilty. We were watching along with everyone else. And we, I think both of our opinions were that the facts looked pretty bad for Alec Murdoch and we believed he was guilty. So I think we were still surprised by how quickly they came back with this. So today we're having back on the attorney we spoke to before and we're going to talk about the results and also why he thinks this case, specifically the fact that it was televised, why he thinks that's a good thing for the United States and our society. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're The Murder Sheet, and this is... The Murdoch Murders. The Verdict. Where were you when you heard the verdict? So I've, I've been watching a lot of this trial as much as I can, uh, you know, in the course of my practice. And I actually had the TV on Thursday night um, just, you know, while the deliberation was going. And I think there was nothing really happening on, on court TV or maybe there were some commentators that I wasn't really paying attention to. And this would have been about four o'clock uh, West Coast time, seven o'clock East Coast time. And then all of a sudden I heard that there was a verdict back three hours after the deliberation started on a six week case. And the first thing I thought of, Oh my God, they're acquitting him. And the reason I thought that is in a case this long and this complex, it really surprised me that they came back with a jury verdict of guilt that fast. What I heard uh, today when I was at uh, a continuing legal education course was that basically there were two jurors that when they went back in the, in the deliberation room, that there were two jurors who voted not guilty and 10 jurors voted guilty. And so the three hours, I assume, was spent convincing those two not guilty jurors um, that they were incorrect and that they should vote to convict Mr. Murdoch. Very, very quick, lightning fast uh, conviction in this case, given the length of the trial. I can say that in my experience, uh, a quick verdict on a long trial is almost always a defense verdict. Um, my last trial was two weeks long. 
the jury came back in 45 minutes. I got into court. I asked the judge if, they, if the judge fed them lunch, and the judge said, yeah, they had lunch while they were deliberating, and I knew that was a not guilty verdict because it was a two-week trial, 45-minute deliberation. They just could, and it was a very, very serious case, and I figured they just couldn't convict my client while, over lunch in 45 minutes. And so, you know, that, that's consistent with my experience as a lawyer. A fast verdict, a very fast verdict, is normally an acquittal. And then if I were... Mr. Murdoch's case, I think there was Mr. Murdoch's attorney, excuse me, I think, you know, I would have anticipated that was going to be an acquittal when they came back so fast. So I was really surprised that the jury came back in three hours with guilty on all counts. What does that tell you about a guilty verdict being reached so quickly? Does that just say that the jury felt pretty confident in coming to that conclusion? Or how do you read that uh, speed? I think that uh, that tells me that the prosecutor was very successful in discrediting Mr. Murdoch and the positions he was taking in this case, and that they basically thought he was full of crap. The jury did. Yeah, it certainly seems like that. It, we were we, we were actually in the middle of a Patreon chat with some of our listeners when the verdict when we read that the verdict came down, and we all kind of immediately jumped off to go wa- live stream it and and find out what was going on and. I, I didn't really, I mean, I was trying to, you know, gameplay it like, okay, would this be a, would it be more likely to be a quick acquittal or a quick conviction? But I think, uh, I think a lot of people were definitely commenting on the speed. Yeah. When, when I saw it was three hours again, I was almost certain it was going to be an acquittal. I, I, I didn't see them convicting Mr. Murdoch so quickly on a six week trial that had so many moving parts, but they did. And I'm not surprised at the end of the day that he got convicted. I'm just surprised with the speed with which they convicted him. Is it a situation where you think that uh, this is a, I mean, this was a, I mean, I know we talked last time and you mentioned you felt it was a pretty strong circumstantial case against Alec Murdoch, even though maybe the prosecution made some errors during the trial itself. Now that we have the results, you know, are you, are you thinking about any other aspects of that assessment or has your opinion changed on anything? No, I, I still think this was a, a very strong case for the prosecution. You know, my, I wanted to see a conviction in this case. I thought Alec Murdoch did it. I thought these crimes were some of the most horrific crimes I've ever heard about in my life. You know, we talked about the concept of a family annihilator. It's a very rare profile. And so, yeah, um, I wanted him to be, convicted in this case. I was glad he was convicted. I think the prosecution did a great job. Did they make a few mistakes? Yeah. But like I said, the last time we talked, you're going to make mistakes in a six-week trial. It's it's too intense. It's too stressful. You don't want to make big mistakes, but you're going to make a few small mistakes. I thought the prosecution really cleaned up the case on rebuttal. And um, I knew that Alec was in trouble when they called uh, former Sheriff T.C. Smalls to the stand and T.C. Smalls told the jury that he never authorized Alec uh, Murdoch to put blue lights on his private vehicle. So a fact in this case that the prosecutor made a big deal of was basically Alec liked to act like he was a prosecutor, put blue lights in the vehicle. And then when asked on cross-examination about this, he said three different law enforcement officers knew about this and authorized him to do it. It would be very rare for a private vehicle to have you know, flashing blue lights similar to a police vehicle. And then he named they named the people who authorized him to do it. One of them being uh, former sheriff T.C. Smalls. T.C. Smalls took the stand in rebuttal, 
and told the jury, absolutely, that never happened. I don't know why he said that. I didn't do that. I would never do that. It's, it's very inappropriate to have blue lights in a, in a private vehicle driven by someone who's not, you know, a law enforcement agent. And so right there, the problem that that created for the defense is the defense had been, you know, saying Alec Murdoch is a liar. He's a cheat. He's a thief, but he's not lying to the jury. He's coming clean now. He lied about these other things. He owned that, but he's telling the truth now. So when T.C. Smalls took the stand and said that Alex was lying under oath on the stand, I think that really took a lot of the air out of the, that argument for the defense, basically, because then the jury was presented with a, a person who not just had lied to law enforcement for the reasons that he had given, um, but now the jury was confronted with someone who the prosecution had proven uh, had lied on the stands. So I think that painted Alec as a perjurer, and I think he was in trouble after T.C. Smalls took the stand. He was in trouble before that, but I really think that was a strong piece of evidence for the state. I was going to say, I think the state did a great job on this case, case start to finish. Um, they, they put a tremendous amount of resources into this case. They they wanted to win this case very badly. Uh, it's certainly the biggest case any of these guys have ever touched. Um, very unusually, they had the actual attorney general of South Carolina sitting in next to Creighton Waters as a trial assistant. So the, the head attorney general, the, the head lawyer for the government of South Carolina, sat in the trial as a trial assistant, one of the many trial assistants for the state in this case. But they, they put a ton of resources into it. I feel like they were ready for anything that Alec Murdoch could come up with. And I just thought they did a beautiful job. How do you assess the job that the defense did? You know, I thought they did a good job as well. They were given a, a really tough, you know, hand to, to play with. You know, they came into this case. Now that the jury has spoken, we have to believe that Alec actually did all these things, right? I think most people believe that beforehand, but I think we can talk now that he's been convicted as if he had done these things. And, and so when they were first brought into this case, Alec lied to them, right? He lied to them about his involvement in the crimes. He lied to them about where he was. And they, his attorneys made the mistake of believing him. We talked in our last uh, podcast about how Alan Dershowitz advises lawyers to always assume your client is guilty and never believe anything your client is saying unless there's some type of corroboration. And, you know, the reason that you need to do that is so you don't make mistakes. Very early on in this case, there were critical mistakes made by defense counsel, which was to let Alec Murdoch talk to the police and lock himself into a false alibi, which could later be disproven. You know, I think the police were onto this false alibi as early as the second day uh, of the, after the murder occurred when the caretaker of the property, Rogan Gibson, I believe his name, called the police and said, hey, I heard Alec Murdoch down at the kennels right before Paul, who was uh, Rogan Gibson's friend, was murdered. And so I think right away, the police were kind of on the, on the blood trail of Alec Murdoch. And, but Alec had been lying to his attorneys about what he had done. And so that really put him and his attorneys at a disadvantage. They then had Alec speak three times to the police, lock him into this false alibi. And that really dictated everything that happened in the case afterwards, including Alec Murdoch 
having to take the stand in this case. So I think they made some mistakes early on. I think their presentation in court w- was, was very good. I think their uh, examination of witnesses was very good. I think they came up with some plausible alternative theories, but I think at the end of the day, the evidence of guilt with respect to Alec Murdoch was so overwhelming that the defense counsel really couldn't generate any type of significant momentum in this case to, to start to get the jury to think that some of these uh, theories that they were putting forth were based in fact and perhaps had, had occurred instead of Alec murdering his wife and son. One thing I wanted to jump back to was the presence of the, I believe you said the attorney general of South Carolina at the trial. Right. So what do you make of that? I mean, because I'm, I'm thinking about that and, and what that signifies, especially considering that Alec Murdoch was himself the solicitor sort of functioning as a district attorney in the past. I mean, and we talked last time a bit about how fundamentally that would shake the South Carolina legal community, uh, having one of their own essentially then be in this high profile murder trial. And I guess what do you with that in mind, how do you interpret the presence of the attorney general there? Most of what I know about his involvement comes from the press conference that he gave after uh, the verdict was reached yesterday. So after the verdict, the state's attorneys came out and it was primarily the attorney general who was giving the press conference. And then he let Creighton Waters speak for a minute. You know, it's it's really unusual to have that situation, to have to take the top law enforcement officer for the state, which would be the attorney general and take him out of his normal position, which would be a supervisory role only. I I doubt he's trying a lot of cases. Certainly in my state, the attorney general doesn't try cases. And take him away from his normal duties and put him in this position where he's essentially Creighton Waters' assistant. He even called himself that, trial assistant, uh, for six weeks. It's unusual. If I were Creighton Waters, that would have made me nervous, right, to have my boss's boss watching over me under the guise of being a trial assistant <laughs> during the entire case. But I think Creighton handled it very well. But yeah, it's, it's an unusual situation to have the absolute top law enforcement officer sitting in a trial and then playing essentially a tertiary role in the trial, uh, you know, doing errands and, and, and the like. It was an unusual situation. I've never seen it before. You know, typically the, the people who supervise district attorneys, who supervise uh, attorney generals, department of justice attorneys, these people aren't trying cases. They're in a supervisory role. One thought I had is, is he wanted to be there during the trial and, and make sure Creighton Waters was doing everything the way he wanted to do it. But that, that just seems like kind of an uncomfortable situation for Mr. Waters. Mysteries are at the heart of everything we do here on The Murder Sheet. But sometimes it's more fun to dive into a fictional caper. That's why we love the free-to-download hidden object game, June's Journey. This game is our daily escape from waiting around in line, getting stuck on hold, and just general doldrums. It is great to be able to just knock out a few levels here and there. You'll get to discover your inner sleuth and sharpen your observational skills by finding clues hidden in each level. Plus, it's like dropping straight into your own cozy mystery novel. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective with a nose for trouble. You get to tackle all kinds of bizarre crimes across a series of elegant and memorable locales. Also, you have a side hustle decorating your own island estate. I love that. I bought a swan pond. She really did. Download this game for a built-in work break. 
It's a great mental health boost that makes you feel accomplished before you get back to tackling whatever task you have at hand. And remember, when you support our advertisers, you're supporting our show. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Uh, I'm curious, do you have any insights as to what it's like in those moments when you're standing next to your client waiting for a verdict to be read? That's a great question, Kevin. This is the hardest part of the trial. After closing arguments, waiting for the verdict. If your client is in custody, then normally your client, you're not going to be waiting with your client. You're going to be in the courtroom and the client's going to be in some secure, you know, courthouse jail or over at the jail at the jail's next door. If your client's out of custody, then you're, you're sitting there with your client the whole time. But this is absolutely the most nerve wracking moment of the trial. Um, I hate that. I, I hate the deliberation time. My stomach is sick. I can't eat. I can't drink water. I can't drink coffee. I just, you know, I'm super anxious and I, I just want the, the verdict to come back, but I want the right verdict to come back. I want the verdict that I want to come back. So it's, that's, it's a, it's a very, very stressful and intense situation uh, for an attorney and uh, even more so for the client to be in. And then if, if the news comes back and it's bad news for the client, how do you as a defense attorney maintain composure? And, you know, I mean, what can you tell us what, what that is like and what the best thing to do is for your client in that situation? Yeah. And pe different people have different ideas. I, I heard a commentator, you know, last night say, oh, Alec Murdoch must have been guilty because when they read the verdict, he wasn't kicking and screaming. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I, d I don't think that that's true. Okay. And here's why I always, courtroom decorum is important, right? And the, the judge does not want any type of reaction from anyone in the court. And the judge made that perfectly clear in the Murdoch case. And I know that every judge is like that. So I always coach my clients, hey, you got to just have a stone face when the jury comes out, no matter what happens, guilty, not guilty, hung jury, no reaction. Your emotional reaction should be with me and your family after the jury is no longer in front of you. And so, and that's what the court wants. That's how I coach my clients. And so I don't think that a lack of, you know, disbelief or a lack of an outburst by Alec Murdoch is evidence that he is guilty. I think he is guilty, but I don't think that in itself is evidence that he's guilty. I, I just think that, you know, that is how the court expects you to behave when the verdict is coming down. And not just the attorneys and, and the parties, but also the people who are in the gallery. 
I, I they do. The court does, does not want an emotional reaction from anyone in the court when the jury verdict is read. And the reason that the court doesn't want that is primarily for the benefit of the jury. That that makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of people get the wrong idea from, you know, fictional courtroom dramas as opposed to how courts actually operate in real life. Uh, I'm curious, do you think the fact that this trial was televised, do you think that had any impact pro or con on the proceedings? No, not necessarily. Um, I think it had a positive impact on our country. I think allowing people to view the inside of a courtroom and to view pretty much every aspect of such a high-profile trial is good for our country. I think it's good to uh, have open access to courtrooms. Um, so I, I'm all for open access to courtrooms. I'm all for nothing being sealed in court proceedings. And I have no problem with televisions uh, being in the courtroom if that's what they want to do. I think it helps maintain accountability in the process. Uh, what are some of the other things that jumped out at you about all of this? The thing that fascinates me about this case perhaps the most it's just the char- the characters involved are so they're they're complex people. They're people who, by all outward appearances, were this super successful and happy and loving family. But at the end of the day, there were all kinds of problems. Uh, and I think that's why this case has has been so captivating, just uh, the family dynamic, the uh, allegations of a husband killing his wife and son. Uh, now, Domestic violence murders are very common, as I'm sure you guys know, but um, I guess it would be patricide would be the right word. A father killing his son, that's very, very uncommon. And I think that dynamic really um, made this case fascinating to a lot of people. I thought Paul Murdoch himself was a fascinating character. You know, this kid who was, you know, born into an immensely wealthy family kind of had the attitude that he could do anything he want, got himself in trouble and uh, just ca- kind of kept plugging along. And then if you believe the, the jury verdict, I think that Paul's behavior is what precipitated this, this situation. Not that uh, Paul deserved to be murdered, but I think that the pressure that he was putting on his father caused his father to kill him. They called Paul the little detective. I'm sure you guys have heard that in the course of this case. And they called him that because he was spying on his dad and and trying to keep his dad off of opioid analgesics, Um, you know, finding drugs, reporting it to the family, telling the family that, you know, Alec is acting like he's clean, but he's not. And I think that was one of the precipitating factors that led Alec to make this horrible uh, decision to kill his son. Ironically, right, ironically, the little detective was the one who solved this case. And the reason this case was solved was that the little detective took a Snapchat video of his dad at the scene of the murder right before the murder happened. But for that video, I have to think that they never would have even brought this case. I see that as the little detective solving the case, you know, albeit from the grave, which also is fascinating to me, the, the digital evidence in this case, the digital trail, and the highly unforgiving set of facts that that confronted Alec Murdoch with. So to me, this whole case was interesting, start to finish. It really was unusual. It was probably the most high-profile trial since O.J. Simpson. Could you guys think of one that received more attention since O.J. Simpson than this? 
I, I can't. This has been almost uh, unprecedented in the last uh, few decades in terms of the public attention. I mean, obviously things like Casey Anthony and things like this, but it seemed like everybody was talking about this trial. Everybody was talking about this trial. It was amazing. Yeah, and, and so I, I think a lot of those factors combined to make this a captivating case for the country. American people seem to be obsessed and, and fascinated with the fall of people from power. And this case presented an absolute, just a, an immediate fall from power once all of these things came to light, once the gathering storm, as Creighton Waters called it, was about to dump rain on Alec Murdoch's head. Another thing that's interesting to me is the circumstantial evidence against him uh, seems so strong. I wonder what goes into the decision-making process to go to trial as opposed to seeking uh, a plea bargain. Well, I think that they were all in on this case. I don't think a plea bargain in this case to include the financial crimes would have ever had Alec Murdoch breathing free air again. I think that the prosecutor would, and I'm just guessing, but if I were the prosecutor in this case, I would have insisted on a life sentence. You have two dead bodies. You have someone who has stolen millions of dollars from clients. You have someone killing their wife and son, the ultimate breach of trust there. Perhaps one, one scenario, Kevin, is that the prosecutor never made an offer, didn't want a plea bargain want this case to end up exactly how it ended up. And in murder cases, that's not uncommon. It's it's hard to plea bargain murder cases in general. It, it just is. Because the prosecutors want a ton of time unless the facts are really in favor of the defendant. And then maybe you could get it down to a manslaughter or a criminal homicide or something like that. I was just wondering, in terms of the criminal justice system, we, we know that like a conviction doesn't necessarily mean the story is over. Do you envision like an appeal or something or how, how could that play out for people who might be curious about what's the next step? I can guarantee you that Alec Murdoch is going to appeal this conviction. What he would do would first be file a notice of appeal and then he would get a copy of the transcripts and either hire a private attorney or have one appointed to him, a public defender. And then the attorney would then prepare an appeal, which would be a written brief as to why the trial court made mistakes. And then the state would have a chance to respond to that. And then at some point in time, that would be set down for oral argument. And in my state, there would be a three-judge panel reviewing legal uh, rulings made by the trial court. You can't really appeal the jury's verdict. What you can appeal is legal rulings by the trial court, and then you can say, that those rulings impacted the jury verdict. In this particular case, I think Alec Murdoch's best appeal issue is going to be the bombardment, uh, the opening of the floodgates with respect to character evidence that the, the court allowed in this case. Much of this case, and much of closing argument for that matter, was dealt with things other than the murder of Maggie and Paul. They dealt with other cases that Alec was suspected in being involved in the deaths of other people, Gloria Satterfield, the housekeeper, Stephen Smith, a young man who was found dead by the side of the road, the boat case, Mallory Beach's death, Alec Murdoch's financial crimes. I mean, this was a huge part of the case. Now, generally speaking, right, when you go to a trial, the district attorney 
can't prosecute someone by simply trying to show that they are of poor character. Generally speaking, character evidence is excluded from a trial like this because it is so prejudicial, right? You want the jury to determine whether or not this man did this, not whether or not he might have done it because he is a bad man. And so I think keeping character evidence out of the case is obviously helpful for the defense, and it also potentially keeps the jury from rendering a verdict based on emotion or based on just disliking someone versus based on the facts that are presented by the state in this case. Again, Alec Murdoch was absolutely bludgeoned to death with character evidence in this case, and it came in under the guise of motive, right? Prosecutors said, hey, judge, we're not offering this to besmirch Alec Murdoch's character. We're offering this to show motive. You know, the problem with that is that it was relevant to motive, but it was also highly relevant to his character. And the prosecution really, really, you know, assassinated Alec Murdoch's character with stuff that he had actually done. But still, you know, normally a trial court is not going to let a prosecutor do that in a case like this because it is so prejudicial for a defendant. So if I were doing Alec Murdoch's appeal based on what I saw in the trial, much of it would be the court erred in allowing so much character evidence, so much of this negative information about Alec Murdoch that wasn't directly related to the murder of Paul and Maggie. I think that's his best issue on appeal, and I'm I'm sure that his appellate attorneys are going to make a big deal about that. If the appellate court signs off on that, that the, the trial court should not have let in all this character evidence, then the next step in the analysis will be, well, did that affect the verdict? If the Court of Appeals believes that the trial court erred and that it affected the verdict, then Alec Murdoch is going to get a new trial. If the Court of Appeals believes that the trial court erred and that it didn't result in Alec Murdoch being convicted, in other words, the jury still would have reached the same verdict without the evidence coming in that shouldn't have been let in, then we call that harmless error and the appeal will not be successful if the error is harmless. So to prevail on appeal, Alec is going to have to show that there was an error made by the court that affected the outcome of the verdict or that likely affected the outcome of the verdict. Tall task. In my state, there's, it's about a 2% success rate on criminal appeals. That's not very high. <laughs> no, I assume I would assume South Carolina is similar. I think all states are probably similar. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At The Murder Sheet, we're all about true crime podcasts, but we also adore audiobooks that immerse us in mysteries of both the fictional and nonfictional varieties. So you can imagine that we love Audible. With an Audible subscription, you can enter in an incredible library of audiobooks. We are talking about thousands of titles. Audible also has thousands of podcasts from all sorts of genres, including yours truly's, not to mention all sorts of other audio experiences. Audible members can download or stream included titles at any time, and the Audible app lets you listen on the go. I love listening to audiobooks when I'm doing chores around the house. One novel I'm looking forward to listening to is A Wicked Snow by Greg Olson. It's all about a young crime scene investigator haunted by her mother's mysterious murder. We talked to Greg on the show a while back, 
and I cannot wait to check that out. I love spine-tingling thrillers and mysteries, and I can tell that this one is going to be spooky in the best possible way. Audible brings such atmosphere to the listening experience. Audio is such a wonderful way to lose yourself in a story. Now is a wonderful time to become an Audible member. Murder Sheet listeners are getting a special deal. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try Audible now free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash msheet or text msheet to 500-500. That's audible.com slash msheet or text msheet to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. And one thing that I thought was interesting is some of these media reports where jurors are sort of discussing what they felt was perhaps the most important evidence. And the one thing that I saw cited was the cell phone video. Absolutely. Yeah. And we had talked about that before, right? And, and the last time we had talked about this case, that that was that really became the strongest evidence in the case. And not only the video, but then that Alec had lied about his whereabouts right before the murder had occurred, and that he was in fact at the scene of the murder with the victims of the murder right before the scene occurred. And so, Alex's own words thank him in this case, right? They just did. His words on the video, his words to the police officers, his words on the stand, their best evidence in this case were things that Alec Murdoch had said. I think that video would have been less of a problem for the defense if Alec Murdoch said, yeah, I was down at the kennels at 845. We were getting chicken out of Bubba's mouth. And then I, I went over to my mom's house and I left him there and everything was great. But he didn't. He lied about it. And that became an absolute huge problem. I I think the jury could not overcome the fact that Alec Murdoch had lied about his alibi and that that lie uh, consisted of him lying about when the last time he saw his wife and son were and where the last time he saw them were. I thought Alec Murdoch's testimony uh, that he could believe all of these things, but he couldn't believe his last contact with uh, Maggie and Paul was very, very harmful to the defense, right? If I were Creighton Waters, I would have pushed that even a little harder. You know, I would have said, Mr. Murdoch, how could you not possibly have remembered the last words that you and your wife had or you and your son had before they were murdered? Because he was really, really waffling about, about those interactions, but he was very certain about minute details of what he was doing that night. And so I think this kind of inconsistency in memory also became a huge problem for Alec Murdoch. He had a great memory for things that were helpful in the case, but he had a horrible memory for things that were hurtful in the case and or he lied about things that were hurtful in the case. And as you said, I think you said in our last conversation about this, you know, the fact that he knew that the fact that he seemed to know that it was important what time he was at the kennels 
and and be lying right. around that spoke to some because it, an innocent person would pretty much be like oh well I, I don't know what timing is important so let me just tell you everything and he seemed to be kind of covering something very specific up yes i think that was a huge problem i don't think i don't think that the da hit him on that as much as they could have but apparently they didn't need to they got him, they got him convicted but to me that was really really discrediting testimony you know, a discrediting statement by alec Murdoch. You mentioned how kind of being able to view this unfold is is a helpful thing for the American public in some way. Obviously, it's a very, you know, it's a horrible case with two people brutally murdered and, and so many kind of crimes surrounding it as well. Uh, can you speak more to that about why it's important for people to see the justice system sort of in play in a case like this? Sure. So the, the justice system in our country has taken a lot of hits in the last 10 years, as I'm sure you guys know. I think there is a perception that there are sort of two different justice systems, one for people who are connected and who have money, and one for people who aren't connected and don't have money. But I think what this case showed us is that's not necessarily true, right? Someone who is of tremendous power and wealth and prominence in, in the community can be held accountable just as easily and, and just as willfully as someone who is of no means and, and doesn't have a lot going on for them. I think that's a really important aspect of this case. I also think what I see a lot in, in my cases, and this is a new thing, right, with all this digital technology, that the practice has changed so much in the last 20 years. Now it's all about digital discovery. And Alex really tried to come up with some very creative forensic countermeasures in this case in an attempt to muddy the waters and confuse the jury. He didn't have a cell phone with him at the time the homicides occurred. He tried to construct this alibi where he was at his mom's house when the homicides occurred. He changed clothes and they never found the clothes. He hid the weapons. He did all of this stuff to, to try to make it seem like someone other than him was the perpetrator. And I think what this case can teach us is that, hey, if you commit the crime of murder and if you think you're smarter than the police, you're probably not, and they're going to catch you. And we talked about this before in other episodes. The technology is so omnipresent right now that it's so hard to go anywhere without being detected. And, and so, again, in, in this case, the digital footprint ended up being very unforgiving for Alec Murdoch, which ultimately re resulted in a conviction. I, I think this case was important for the public to know because it really had everything. This case had everything. It had the defendant testifying. It had expert witnesses. It was a homicide case. It involved a prominent family. And I think a lot of people, including myself, were concerned that based on a lot of these factors, Alec Murdoch was not going to be held accountable for the crimes that he committed. And I think that it is good for, for people to understand how the system works and understand that if they commit a crime, most likely in today's day and age, they're going to be apprehended and they're going to be held accountable. So I think that was an important uh, message and, and civic lesson for our country. Yeah, I love that. And I love it's, it's like it's like an anti-commercial, you know, I mean, this is a person who he's he's an intelligent person. He's an attorney. He knows how the system works. He's worked in a law enforcement capacity and has a lot of influence in this area. And if he can't get away with murder, you know, 
then I think nobody can. Nobody can. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's some truth to that. And, and I'm hoping that, you know, Alec Murdoch's uh, guilty verdict will dissuade anyone who was uh, attempting a, a similar plot. I really do. And I think that, that televised in this case could perhaps, you know, work towards that end. Is there anything we didn't ask you about that you wanted to mention or you think it's important for understanding this case? To answer that question, Anya, I, I think that this case can really, again, teach us a lot. I think it can teach law enforcement how to investigate cases the correct way. I think it can teach defense lawyers how to defend cases the correct way. I think it is a stark reminder to all defense lawyers to never let your client talk to the police unless you are 100% sure, which you will never be, that your client is innocent. Because the worst thing you can do is to allow your client to get locked into a false story like Murdoch's lawyers did. I think that this real, this case really showed that the system works. Alec Murdoch really tried to muddy the waters with his attorneys, came up with all types of, of different theories, you know, the two-shooter theory, the no-motive theory, the bad investigation theory. Alec Murdoch couldn't have killed and, and two people and cleaned up in 17 minutes theory. And so really the prosecutor was kind of hit with all these different things that the, that the defense was throwing at him. But at the end of the day, I think what really mattered in this case was the credibility of Alec Murdoch. And as we kind of started out this episode, I believe the jury at the end of the day thought Alec Murdoch was the absolute least credible person in the entire courtroom, if not the state of South Carolina. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much for being willing to to talk to us on such short notice and, and share your impressions yeah, of this. It's a, I mean, it's a huge case. And I was, I was pretty pleased because I thought that guy was guilty, but I was with you. I thought there was going to be a, a hung jury. Yeah. I, I never thought he was going to be acquitted until the jury came back three hours. And then for that split second before the verdict was read, I thought he was acquitted. I thought it was either going to be a hung jury or a conviction. I think the jury made the right call here. And I was happy to see the justice system work in this case. I think there's a perception amongst the public that criminal defense attorneys such as myself want to see every person charged with a crime acquitted. That's absolutely not true. We live in the same communities as you. Our kids go to the same schools as your kids. We want to live in a safe place. We want to win our cases and we want justice to prevail in all cases. But most of my defense attorney friends who are following this case thought Alec Murdoch was guilty, and we're happy to see him convicted. Yeah, when you've, when you've lost the defense attorneys as a whole, though, I think that, that says something. At the end of the day, there was no reasonable doubt. If I were sitting on that jury, you know, I didn't watch the entire trial, but I watched a lot of it, and I watched the most important part of it, which was Alec's testimony. If I were sitting on that jury, I would have convicted him faster than they did. We would like to thank our guest for coming back on and sharing his views with us. We always enjoy hearing from him. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet.
If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.